Please have that passage open in front of you, Isaiah 40. And uh, we're looking at these opening verses. And really the whole of this passage is perhaps one of the most moving chapters in the whole of Scripture. And every phrase is rich. And Isaiah, prophet of God, called by God, inspired by the Spirit of God, is given this, this message from heaven. And friends, may I say this divine message is something that demands our attention this morning. You know, and more than that, it should move us and grip us and settle us because it is a message of stunning hope and comfort in this broken, ruined, often chaotic, but certainly sinful world. I want to give you firstly some background and then to look at how it brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah was given this message to declare to the children of Israel. And he was called to this responsibility to be faithful in proclaiming the truth in a difficult day. And the Lord had shown Isaiah what was ahead for the nation in the future and all of the, the tragic consequences because of their disobedience. And it was all about to be realized. And so they would be conquered. They would be taken into captivity by Babylon, a very dark, dark time. But if you were to read through Isaiah, you would see that the first part of the book emphasizes that, that judgment and that defeat and the captivity and exile. But then in the Lord's mercy and in his gracious great purposes, Isaiah is given a further message to declare. And it's a message of comfort. It's a message of hope that in the midst of the, the crisis and the chaos that they're about to face, that there is hope, there is somewhere to look, and more importantly, someone to look to. And so there would be defeat, there would be awful captivity, but there would also be deliverance. And the time would come when they would be led out once again from their captivity, when they would be able to leave behind Babylon and to return to Jerusalem. And that's the message that we find in our text in this passage. And so in the first instance, it is a, a message to the children of Israel in their circumstances, and it has been fulfilled. And so captivity came, and it was a dark time in the history of Israel, as we've said, but just as the captivity came, as prophesied by Isaiah, so did the deliverance. And a remnant were led out and back to Jerusalem. And those who chose to do so returned. And so the prophecy was fulfilled in that first instance. So the question then comes, well, well, what does that have to do with us? What relevance has that got to us this morning? Well, if you were to read through the New Testament, these opening verses of Isaiah 40 and a number of others from this passage are used in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. And it shows us that beyond that immediate reference to, to Israel and the, the Babylonian captivity and then the deliverance, there is a pointing to the Lord Jesus, to the great deliverer to come. And so there is a, a picturing, there is a declaring of the gospel and this great rescue, this great deliverance that he will bring, the eternal rescue. And it brings us really to ask this question, well, what is the gospel? What is the message that we are to proclaim? And in our text, verses 1 to 2, we have a very clear summary concerning what the message of Christianity actually is, what the gospel actually is. 
You know, that's why the Bible is such an incredible book. It is the, the word of God. It is God speaking. There is this great consistency through it. And the Lord Jesus can be found throughout the scriptures, and he's right here in our text. And so you find this gospel in the Old Testament, and here you find it pictured, foreshadowed, prophesied. And then at the right time, the fullness of time, in the purpose of God, Jesus came. And he, he lived a life like no other. He undertook his earthly ministry, but he was always focused on doing this saving work that he would accomplish by his sinless life, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection. He would die and he would rise again in great triumph and ascend into heaven where he was exalted and now is one day to return. And you have the account of all those things in the Gospels and then into Acts. And then you've got the rest of the New Testament showing how this Gospel is the power of God and how it changes lives. And the early church is established and the gospel spreads across the world with, with many calling on the name of the Lord. And there's an explanation of, of the gospel and what it is and what it means to be a real Christian and to be part of the body of Christ. But Christ, always central. Christ alone, our hope in life and death. You know, friends, sometimes it seems that we can, and Christians, you know, can take the gospel for granted. You know, they, they think, oh, you know, we've got that and we're, we're past it. But the true believer can never get past the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of Christ, who he is and what he has done and what he is doing, what it means for us to be united to him, to have that saving relationship with him, to know him. You know, we, we can't move past that because, you know, Christ is everything to us. We love him. And it should, should fire our hearts. It should engage our thinking to, you know, to think much and dwell much on the, the glory of it all, this, this wonderful rescue, this deliverance, this being brought to know the Savior. You know, you, you've just stirred and maybe you've sung the words, I will sing the, the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Is that your testimony? Is it a truth that you know? You know, it should fire our hearts. Do we love him? Do we delight in him? And it's also true there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the gospel actually is. It has been so concerning, really, to see increasingly that, you know, there have been things that, that creep in and it almost becomes a Jesus plus gospel. You know, there are certain things that come in. Well, you know, you can only be a real Christian, you know, if you, if you believe in Jesus, but also if you meet these criteria. No, Christ alone is our hope. All our hope is bound up in him. And, you know, we need to be clear on the truth of free and sovereign grace. And it's clear that even, you know, if we were to take our own town, the vast majority have got no idea what the message of the Bible is. And there are so many misunderstandings and misconceptions and errors that have distorted Christianity and sort of seeped out into the consciousness. And so, you know, Christianity and the true message of the Bible is ridiculed, it's dismissed, it's rejected. You maybe have come across some of those objections, you know, uh, speaking to someone recently, oh, well, churches, they're just after your money. You know, it's just a list of rules and regulations which chokes any freedom in your life. 
or the Bible is, you know, it's full of contradictions and, and errors, and, you know, you can't listen to it because it's full of all these mistakes, apparently. Or the church is full of hypocrites. You know, sadly, some of those criticisms are, are not without some basis. But the tragedy is the true claims of Christ are never really considered. And friend, if we want to know what the gospel is, if you want to know what the gospel is this morning, we have to come to the word of God. And without the foundation of the scriptures, we know nothing about the message of God and Christianity. It's got nothing to do with opinions, by the way. You know, if it just comes down to your opinion, one person's opinion, you know, has as much merit as the other. You know, it really doesn't matter what I think Christianity is. It matters what the Bible declares. You know, some people say, oh, well, I'm, I'm religious, you know, and I, I, I think that will be enough, and I'll go on. And the problem is this. If you say that you're religious and that will save you, well, which religion are you going to follow? Which religion will save you? Well, I'll tell you, none. Jesus saves and Jesus alone. And so, you know, we need to come this morning and see this again. If we come with humble hearts and teachable, we will find that the message of the Bible is actually very clear. And it's consistent about how we can know God, how we can be right with God, how we can be forgiven. So let's see some of these things together. And I want you to see that the gospel is a message that is sent from God. God is speaking. God is declaring. You know, you, you see it in verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. You know, it's the obvious starting point. In all things related to the gospel, we have to start with him. We must begin with him. If we're going to have a right view of the message, we must always start with God and not with man. Everything flows from that. You know, the true gospel is all of God. It always begins with him. You know, again, if people have any idea of God, often they sort of have this idea that he's far off. There are some who think, well, you know, God is, if he, even if he exists, he's cruel, he's, he's ruthless, he's vindictive, he's opposed to people. You know, there are those, and maybe even here this morning, they're angry with God. You know, they, they don't want to believe in him most of the time, but when something goes wrong, they're angry at him. And they're, they're raging against him for allowing some circumstance in their lives, some tragedy or some trouble. And their pain and their, their bitterness that they experience, it leads them to conclude that, you know, God takes pleasure in, in causing harm to people. Well, it's just not true. You know, it doesn't consider what the Bible actually says. The Scriptures, of course, reveal God to be sovereign and in control, the one who holds life and death in his hand, the one who is holy and righteous, but at the same time, the God who is near. You know, the God who is compassionate and merciful and gracious and who has intervened to save those who actually deserve nothing from him but wrath. And so we have to reckon with God as revealed in his word. And then there are others who say, even still, that being a Christian is about, you know, trying your best. It's all about what you do and, you know, some attempts to make yourself a better person or to, to prove your orthodoxy or whatever it is. You know, maybe going along to church or, or reading the Bible or doing good things. And so the idea, well, you know, if I do my best, you know, that, that'll be good enough for God. Man-centered religion, which always makes the individual their own saviour through their own efforts, their own works, their own opinions, and working their way up to God. And the better they make themselves, the more confidence they have. 
That's not the gospel. And I'm glad it's not the gospel. The gospel is God's action. It comes from him. It's his work. It's his declaration. And wherever you open the Bible, you'll find that to be true. It begins with him. It's about what he has done, not what we can do. The scriptures tell us that the first man and woman began in a right relationship with God. They were in that perfect environment, but they rebelled against him, embraced sin. They went away and suffered all the the consequences of the fall. And as a result, all of us are sinners. You know, and God could have, have wiped his hands of them. He could have left them to the full consequences of their actions, but that's not what he did. The very God that they had set themselves against and rebelled and insulted against had purpose to provide a rescue for them to redeem sinners. And right from the beginning of Scripture, God declares his intention to act and to say from the time that Adam sinned, God said, in spite of this, I'm going to do something. And he gave the promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. And throughout the Old Testament, God keeps that same promise before the people, continually sending messages and sending this one great message that he himself has promised to do something to rescue men and women in their sin and to redeem them. And it is God who sends this message, God intervening. And here in Isaiah 40, this great truth is there again, Comfort. Yes, comfort my people. God is going to act. You know, have you read the Bible? You know, have you you actually engaged with the word of God? You know, have you brought your opinions concerning God and what the gospel is in comparison with the truth of what the Bible says? You know, you read the Old Testament and you'll see that the children of Israel, they wandered away from God time and time and time again. And had it not been for the Lord's continuous, gracious interventions, you know, they would have been utterly destroyed. But the Lord did not forsake them, even though many times they would not listen. And that is what Isaiah 40 is about. And in fact, the whole Bible, it begins with God, the God who acts, the God who intervenes, the God who sends his preachers, his servants, declaring this message. And the message above everything else is that God so loved the world that he gave. He sent his only begotten son. And the son of God came as a baby, lived as a man and suffered and died upon a cross and God sent him to do this in order that sinners like you and me might be redeemed and reconciled and be brought into the immeasurable blessing of life in Christ and to know God and to walk with him. You know, This text tells us that this gospel is a divine message, a message from God. And it tells us too that this gospel speaks to those who are in trouble because of sin. Look at verse 2. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And so this message comes to those who are in the midst of, of a warfare with sin and its consequences. And that's a vital point of the gospel. The Bible tells us that that all of us, all of us, by nature, are involved in a warfare as a result of sin. And warfare speaks of conflict. It speaks of hard service, times of trouble. And the scriptures tell us that mankind is constantly in this state. But that this is who the gospel is for. 
It's for those who are in this great need. And, you know, we see the outworking of it all around us. You know, consider, you know, the world around us. You know, and we're often dismayed about the things that we hear, the things that we see, the corruption of men. You know, consider ourselves. Let me ask you this morning, you know, are you at peace in yourself? You know, can you say that your life is without any hardship or any conflict or struggle? And what about the battle with your sinful self? You know, the desire, the envy, the greed, the selfishness, the anger, the lust, all those things. Are we at all times perfectly calm? It's just not the case. It is Isaiah 57, 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And what about with others? You know, look at your relationships with family and friends and colleagues and neighbors. Does peace reign in every area? You know, troubles can flare up so quickly and relationships are put under pressure. And life is a struggle and there seems to be such little rest and it's difficult at times, overwhelming and things can quickly get us down and life seems to be full of words like stress and frustration and depression. We're battling against these things. You know, the world is full of trouble and the consequences of sin are so clear. And, you know, we, we get told things will get better. But really, we're going to drink that Kool-Aid again, as they say. The ultimate solution isn't in man's hands. You know, we can be like the text in Jeremiah 8.15. We look for peace, but no good came. We looked for a time of health and there was trouble and so conflict and struggle and travail and wickedness and heartbreak, it's everywhere. The world is full of trouble. It can be so wearisome. And that's why so many try to escape, even if only for a few moments, trying to set aside reality and immerse themselves in whatever takes them away from reality because of the way life is. And you say, well, why? Why is life like this? Well, think of those two things that are mentioned in verse 2. Iniquity. Iniquity, that is wrongness and perverseness. It means that this world and what we see happening is in its twisted, perverted, sinful way. It's not how it was meant to be. The scriptures make it clear. This world we find ourselves was not created like this. You know, men and women, you know, were not meant to be as they are. Life now is not as it was meant to be. It has become this because of iniquity, because of the reality of sin and rebellion. And that's the other word, sin. You know, this has been defined as missing the mark, falling short. You know, the picture being of people shooting an arrow that, that fails to hit the bullseye and the target, always missing. You know, it means people are not doing what they ought to be doing. They're not where they should be. They're, they're not living for God and worshipping Him and all those things. They miss the mark. They fall short of the glory of God and of His perfect standard. And so this is at the root of this terrible conflict and following the fall and man's nature is ruined and instead of peace with God, there is enmity with God. And everything is, is marred by sin. And so came rebellion and selfishness and separation and death and judgment. And we see it, friends. Every day we see the consequences of sin in this world and we see men and women at enmity with God and living for themselves and yet broken and empty and discontent. Maybe you feel like that this morning. You know, maybe you're grasping at what you think life is, but you're empty. You know, and the great enemy of souls tells us that, that life without God is the best life, but it is the very worst. 
and it has appalling consequences both now and forever. And unless we understand the the seriousness of these things, we will not understand why the world is like it is. And we certainly won't understand the gospel. But the word of God is so clear. You know, and as much as we try to deny it and dismiss and belittle, it speaks perfectly to our situation because it is true. Because it's God's message. And God knows. And it tells us that we are broken, that we are suffering the consequences of this terrible conflict, that we are at enmity with God. We can never know peace or hope in this life or the next if we remain like that. You know, people are desperate for hope. They're desperate for peace. They're desperate for happiness. And they try to to buy it, but they can't. You know, you can be the most intellectual, most learned, most read and have no peace. All the education in the world can't solve, solve this fundamental problem because it's a spiritual one. And the problem is it's no respecter of persons either, whether you're great or small, rich or poor, old or young, we all face it. And so our text says this is our condition. It won't change until we're reconciled to God. And, you know, maybe you're there, you don't want to hear it, but it's true. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the unfaithful, the way of the transgressor is hard. You know, if you continue turning away from God, it will only lead to to further conflict and misery. Sin is a hard taskmaster. And people are so foolish to think that they can find peace on their own and forget God and look to themselves. And in fact, if you look a bit further down in the passage, verses 7 to 8, you see the frailty of people. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So the gospel is this message from God. It shows us the trouble that we're in, but it speaks to those who are in that desperate need. The gospel speaks to those in desperate need. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. In the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of all that is taking place, this rebellion, this enmity, in misery and darkness, God himself comes with a message of comfort. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, cry out to her. Literally, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. You know, isn't that wonderful? It means that God didn't send his message to us in some great intellectual, philosophical, encrypted mass of information. He doesn't send his messengers with with abstract and confusing thoughts. God comes to us. He knows us. He knows our troubles. He knows that we're weary and that we're tired and that we're exhausted amidst all that's taking place, that we're spent and that we're defeated. And he comes and speaks to our hearts and our greatest need. And the message of God comes to us in Christ, right to where we are, right to the heart of the issue. And this gospel comes to us exactly as we are, however weary and sad and troubled we may be. But it doesn't leave us there. God knows all about us. He knows you this morning. He knows the things that are upon your hearts. He knows those things that you carry. And he sends this message of comfort. He has purpose for you to be here. You know, he's not telling you to to save yourself. He's not telling you to to rouse yourself up or or sort yourself out in your own ability and power. You know, what's the use of that to someone who's got no ability to do it? 
who's tired and exhausted and at the end of themselves. You know, he doesn't come and say, well, if you follow this set of guidelines, you know, if you, you, you come and be the master of your own fate, if you just bring about your own change, if you just turn over a new lip or you, you lead a different life or, you know, just live out the Sermon on the Mount. It's impossible. We can't do that. And it's not the message of the gospel. The Lord speaks and the message is the announcement and the greatest, the most astonishing news that has ever come into this world. And it is bound up in that word, comfort. You say, well, well, what is it? What is the heart of the message? Well, look at those words again, pardon. Her iniquity is pardon. So we've seen sin brings these awful consequences. The wages of sin is death. People like to think they can do what they want. There'll be no consequences. It's just not true. Sin has consequences in our lives, in our families, in our communities, amongst nations, and so on. Yet the Holy God tells us that there is one way in which our sin can be pardoned and can be forgiven. That there is one way that we can be delivered from the struggle, our sin, our guilt, the power of sin over us. It has to be dealt with. We can't do it. No other human in this world can help us either. The whole world is guilty before God. We can't make ourselves right. But here is the glory of the message. God has done it. God has provided the way. God has condescended to step down and to come. And you say, well, how? Well, God is willing to pardon because he is satisfied with the punishment. Look again at the text. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. His justice is satisfied. And that brings us to the heart of the gospel. You know, God doesn't just say, well, okay, I forgive you. Let's just sweep all that away. He can't do that. He's just and he's holy and he's righteous. He must punish sin. So how can he forgive? Friends, you know the answer. And if you don't, let me tell you again. It brings us to Calvary, to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Son of God dying upon that cursed tree. He drinks the cup of wrath to its full on behalf of those who trust him. He cries out, it is finished. And what is finished? The work of atonement. Sin dealt with. God has punished it in the person of his Son and is satisfied. His justice is satisfied and the death of Christ is enough. It is done. And the sin of all who trust in him has been dealt with. It has been taken away. They are washed in the precious blood of the Savior. And it's because of that that God is able to announce pardon and forgiveness. The thing that separated us, the thing that caused that enmity and rebellion has been removed. And the way is open. And those in Christ have been reconciled to God. Again and again and again, I keep coming back to this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, I've said it so many times in this pulpit, I'll never tire of saying it. There is this great exchange when someone comes to the Lord Jesus like that. The sinner who comes to Jesus finds that all their guilt, all their sin, all their condemnation is laid upon him. And they receive forgiveness and his perfection and his righteousness and everlasting life and peace and joy in Jesus Christ alone. 
you know, through repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus, all of which are gifts of God's grace, we bring nothing but our sin and exchange. We're given everything in the Lord Jesus. And that's what it means to be a real Christian. It's not about being a good person. It's not about being, you know, this or that or the other or doing this or that or the other. It is simply trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And we are given pardon in him. And also it means that the warfare is over. Look again at the text. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her. Her warfare is ended. In Christ, the hostility between us and God is ended forever. And peace is secure. The enmity is removed. We are reconciled. We can know God as our Father in heaven. That's why we read Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, forgiveness, just the beginning as it were, doesn't stop with being forgiven. We're brought into a new condition, a new position. Again, look at verse 2. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You know, some say, well, that just means that God has meted out double punishment on the sins of the people and pardon is available. Well, in one sense that's right, but there's more. The blessing is not just that their sin has been dealt with, but that they will receive the grace and the love of God in an overwhelming way that is greater than their sin. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so God not only removes the punishment in the death of Christ and gives us pardon and deliverance, but he gives us infinitely more. And the riches of his grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ, we are made new. We are given a new nature, a new mind, a new outlook. We're given strength and enabling to stand against sin and the enemy. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. God is no longer against us. But he's so much for us. It's a wonderful thing to know. If you're a believer this morning, God is for you. He will always be for you in Christ. That will never change. He lavishes immeasurable, innumerable blessings upon his children. We are loved with everlasting love. He, he is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. There's the comfort. To be right with him, to know him. All the promises are ours in Christ. The scripture is no longer a closed book, but they are our delight. It is a living word to us. You know, we know that we can go to him in prayer, you know, at all times. There'll never be a time when we're, we've refused access because in Christ the access is open. We know that we're not left alone in the darkness, but Christ is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we're lost in wonder and love and praise at the depth and the riches of what it means for us to be united with him and to find him to be our all in all. And we get these four tests of what God has prepared for those who love him. Because we've also been given a, a stunning prospect of glory to come, to be with Christ. Inheritance incorruptible, undeviled, reserved in heaven for you, believer. And the Lord Jesus longs for you to be with him. And one day you will be. 
And we know that life in this world is temporal. There is a great glory to come. A new heaven and new earth, the, the place where death will no longer hold any terror, but the door to glory, the presence of Christ, everlasting peace and bliss and wonder. You know, this is good news. God calling sinners like me and like you in all our sin and failure and frustration and desperation and enmity, God calling us out and to himself. And so he says to you this morning, he's not saying, pull yourself together. He's not saying, you know, try harder. No, he's saying, look again to my gracious provision. Even my own son, look to the Lord Jesus, all of his wonder, all that he has done, and all of his grace calling us and granting us repentance and faith, drawing us and saving us and keeping us. And I want to ask you directly this morning, have you heard his call? Have you heard his call to come to him? You know, we have, as we have said so often, the external call of the gospel. You know, all of you hopefully can hear what I'm saying physically but we long that you'd hear it spiritually in your heart and that you'd hear Christ calling you to come to him. And above all the noise of this chaotic world, God hears the cry of desperation and faith. And if in your heart, even this morning, you desire to know that way to heaven, if you desire to know him, if you're asking God to give you light and understanding, and grace. You can know that he's listening to you, and he will hear you, and he will answer you. And so cry out to him in the depths of your soul. Call upon his name, and believe that his son is the only one who can save you from all that we've been speaking of, sin and death and hell, and he will hear you, and he will save you, because Jesus says to the uttermost, all that call upon his name. And I urge you, don't leave this place without crying to the Lord. Oh God, save me. Please give me to believe in Jesus Christ. Please give me this comfort that my heart desperately longs for. The comfort which is only found in and through the Savior. I pray that you'd know it. You know, it breaks my heart that there are so many that go around, they know no peace, and they'll never find it. They'll never find it outside of Christ. They have no hope. Here is hope, the message of God, the provision of God, Jesus Christ, and him alone. May you know him. May you know the salvation that he brings. And may you be able to rejoice this morning, because your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen.